This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is the second episode in the series where we look at George Orwell and his political ideology through the classic and beloved novella and allegory, Animal Farm. Last week, we discussed the life and times of Orwell himself, and we looked, albeit very briefly, at the first couple of chapters of the book itself, highlighting really the deceptively light-hearted tone of the first couple of chapters where a wise old boar expounds the beauties of animalism, uh, a dream world where everyone is treated fairly and properly, where everyone feels respect and attains a life of leisure, but most importantly, where the blame for all the cruelties of life is clearly identified and on whom it should fall, and the answer recipient of all that blame is man. Man is the source of all evil, and to get rid of man is to get rid of tyranny, cruelty, and every other bad thing that's going on. We ended with the animals roaring in applause as they are lost in the utopian dream. And singing, although I don't think we brought this out, uh, what would be their theme song, their national anthem, Beast of England. Now, according to Orwell, it is a stirring tune, something between... Clementine and La Cucaracha. Not really sure how you can, how do they call it mosh? How do you say it? Mosh up those songs together. But uh, we should probably give it a go. Uh, Beast of Ving. Clementine goes, Oh my darling, oh my darling, oh my darling, Clementine. And La Cucaracha goes, La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha. Da 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 da. So can you put those together, Gary? Uh, no. I'm just going to go with Clementine. I think Clementine will do this. So, do you want to sing the first verse for us to the melody of Clementine? Maybe you should sing it with me. All right, we'll give it a try. Okay. 
Beast of England, beast of Ireland, beast of every land and clime, hearken to my joyful tidings of the golden future time. I think that's the end of our singing career. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure coming through bleats of talking pigs, horses, chickens, rats, it kind of all blended in together anyway. But today we're going to look at the book pretty much solely as a straightforward, thinly veiled discussion of Russian politics and a criticism of the Russian Revolution and the communism that resulted after that. I do want to point out that this book is written in the third person. What that means is we're not in the story, and so we're at a safe distance from everything really that's happening uh, in the book. We're not going to feel like we're one of the animals on the farm. The story very much feels like it's another world, uh, but in some sense it must be really understood that it's a very specific time and place in human history that the first level of understanding really does apply. So to understand this, you have to, you just have to begin with a discussion of Russian history. And I know it feels like we're going to be going super heavy on the history. We got into the Spanish Revolution last week and we talked about colonialism. But you must understand the series of events, especially the ones that we're going to talk about today, as they unfolded in Russia in real life. Because when you understand that, then the whole story will make sense. And it's a huge mistake. I know people do it, but it's a huge mistake to avoid a discussion of Russian history when studying this book. Uh, In this book, from a historical perspective, it's unavoidable to see the extremely obvious connection. It's Orwell's obvious purpose to not hide who each character was or that he was even talking about Russia. And we're going to use the term Soviet Union, too, because Russia is pre-revolution, Soviet Union, post-revolution. And Orwell's obviously right about the Soviet Union. So anyway, it was the Soviets who called everyone comrade. And I think everyone who grew up during the Cold War uh, thinks about the Soviets when they hear that word comrade. So I, I don't know if it's even used anywhere else outside of communist circles in the Soviet Union. So when Old Major begins by saying all animals are comrades, the secret is out. The code word has been uttered. This farm is the Soviet Union. <laughs> it reminds me, you know, sometimes people say, I say this all the time, like I'm saying, I'm not going to tell you whose fault it is, but his name rhymes with Harry, and the first letter is a G. How many times have I heard that? (laughs) So the idea is it's so thinly veiled, there's just no possible way to not see the absolute direct parallels. Right. And so let's get a little familiar with the country of Russia and its incredibly diverse and interesting past. And this is going to lead us to a Christie fun fact. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Not only did Christie do a study abroad in the former Soviet Union, we've got to keep all that terminology straight um she also has a minor in russian language studies yes i don't talk about that because i haven't really talked spoken in russian in a really long time but which is why i didn't put you on the spot <laughs> to say, like i normally do well and people always say yo you lived in russia you lived in russia but that's not true i never lived in russia even though when i went over there at the time i didn't know where i was going when i was in co- i was in college uh in the early 90s if you want to date me Uh, I was an exchange student to this place called Kazakhstan, and that was a very newly independent country. 
during the Soviet era, it was a Soviet republic. Now, republics in Russia, we say like the Republic of the United States. Well, in the Soviet Union, each state was called a republic. So you had the Republic of Kazakhstan, you had the so the Republic of Uzbekistan, you had the Republic of Russia. So they were like states. Uh, and although each state had each republic had its own diverse culture. Some were Muslim, some were Christian, some were even many, many languages. Russia, because the Russians dominated all of it, really their culture permeated uh, through it, through the entire Soviet Union. So Russia was a republic uh, and Kazakhstan was a republic. At, in the one country we call the Soviet Union, which only existed from 1922 to 1991, so that period where there was a country called the Soviet Union, that period of history only lasted a few short years. But that's the period that Orwell's talking about and that Animal Farm is talking about. So when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, I was in college and I had these things that were emerging. So in 1992, I signed up to go into the Soviet Union through this exchange program. Like everybody else, I was super enamored with Everything Soviet. I'd seen the movies, and I'd wanted to be a spy. Of oh course. my gosh! Oh. Every James Bond movie <laughs> for years. Yes. That's right. So I went with a group of six students, and we studied in a university called Kazgugrad, and we studied Russian language and culture, and we thought we were pretty cool because we got to see behind the Iron Curtain, as we called it back then, the secret world that nobody knew anything about, and it was mysterious. And, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Who coined the term Iron Curtain? Ah. Uh, Roosevelt, Winston Churchill. Oh, Winston Churchill. Well, of course he did. He coined everything. Well, anyway, uh, I didn't know that. The story of how the Soviet Union was created is Orwell's story, and another. And so each animal is involved. Is, is are the people there over there? And as everyone in the West quickly discovered when the mysterious Winston Churchill Iron Curtain came down. The world behind the Iron Curtain was never the dream that Old Major describes or that the Russian people envisioned when they threw out the czars or Mr. Jones and brought in the communists. I know that I was really unprepared for what I saw, but maybe we'll talk about that in another episode. But today, let's tell the Russian and the Soviet story. Let's tell a very abbreviated Russian-Soviet <laughs> history because it's so vast. So we're only going to do what's usable for our purposes here with the book. So uh, until the beginning of the 20th century, Russia was an empire, which means it was a monarchy like the other European countries of the time period. The head of the monarchy, or the czar, which, by the way, is a derivative of the word Caesar, meaning their leader had total control over the country. Russia had a czar starting back in 1547, and when the czars were good, the country developed some amazing cultural landmarks that have really lasted until this day, the most famous being Peter the Great, who is most well-known for building the beautiful city of Petersburg, and Catherine the Great, who revitalized Russia, made it one of the strongest powers in Europe, and her reign has been called the Golden Age of Russia. So during the 20th century, monarchy was under assault everywhere in every country uh, in Europe. And the result was, in some cases, a constitutional monarchy where democracy was broadened. But in most cases, the antithesis to monarchy 
was fascism, communism, and totalitarianism. Each regard themselves as the only isms that could wipe out the old monarchy and let the people rule. And radical revolution was the only way it could be accomplished. And that was going to be carried out in Tsarist Russia. Well, I do want to point out that women make fabulous monarchs. And Catherine the Great is, of course, no exception. But the British have come up with a couple themselves. Well, of course you have to throw that in there. All right. I assumed you would interject on that note. And and I would say no one would disagree with you. Uh, Catherine reigned from 1762 till 1796. And from her reign onward, to Russia's credit, they did try to move into the new era of more political representation like other countries all over the world, albeit somewhat slower than the others. But as Russia moved in the 20th century, things got problematic. Uh, peasants were getting poorer and poorer, and the First World War created all kinds of problems. The emperors of this period, as accurately portrayed by Orwell through Mr. and Mrs. Jones, were increasingly selfish and uninterested in the lives of working people. Many people were going without food and living in extremely harsh conditions. And as you know, from living in that part of the world... When the weather is as cold as it is in Russia, suffering is magnified. And how cold was it in Russia when you were there? Too cold. (laughs) All right. (laughs) One major problem is that the Russian nobility took way too long to abolish serfdom. Serfdom is when uh, peasants would own nothing and work the land for rich people who owned it. A version of tenant farming that you know maybe some Americans would be familiar with. Anyway, in a sense, the nobility owned them, and, and no one anywhere else in Europe was living like that. And even though Russia abolished serfdom in the 1860s, everyone continued to view Russia as really backward and underdeveloped, and including the Russian peasants who, as soon as they could leave those farms, moved to cities where they were living in horribly overcrowded tenant houses and uh, from here we went into the first of the Crimean War then ultimately World War One, where the Russians are going to suffer more death than any other country in the world at any other point in human history. They were devastated by the war, uh, by food shortages after the war, fuel shortages. Then if that wasn't bad enough, the Tsarina was of German descent. So as you can see, Orwell's metaphor of forgetting to feed the animals and getting drunk is, if anything, kind of an understatement as to how bad living in Russia was under the reign of Tsar Nicholas II. I'm glad you introduced the idea of metaphor because that's, of course, what an allegory is. It's when everything is a metaphor of something else or even more than one thing, as we'll see. This is a some. This is a discussion of what happened in Russia, but it's not exactly a discussion because some things have exact parallels and some don't. He's making much bigger points about Russia, but we have to understand the Russian stuff before we can understand any of the bigger stuff. So let's look at this. Mr. Jones is specifically the czars. So he's going to be the king and he's negligent and he's selfish, just like Uh, the monarchs were selfish and he's an alcoholic well whiskey in this book is going to be a symbol of corruption the whole time so when he gets drunker and drunker that's kind of a symbol for being he gets more and more corrupt uh, as things go along so when he gets run off the farm this is just like the Anastasia story you know that that family gets run out of Russia 
Now let's move on to the other characters. Uh, last week we introduced the old porker old major. And of course he is going to be, this is what I mean when some things aren't exact parallels. He seems to be a mix of two historical characters, Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. These are the two guys in, in the story, Animal Farm. These two people are going to be represented through one character, if that makes sense. Uh, and they interject them stories in the way that Old Major interjects himself into the life of Animal Farm. So tell us about that. Well, it starts with a German man named Karl Marx who wrote, of course, the Communist Manifesto in 1848. Um, he wrote it at a time that Germany, the country he was a citizen of, was undergoing unification struggles and emerging from feudalism. And so there's a lot of social forces there. You throw in industrialization that's crushing the lower class. Uh, that was influential. And Marx in his work proposes that it's really labor that only gives something value not industry. And uh, he actually believed in his ideas of class struggle that were being forced by capitalism, that through that you would have a, a working class of people that would emerge to rule themselves. He felt like England was probably the most ripe for this to occur. And so, therefore, we have his whole concept of class struggle. And I think this was what was attractive to Orwell. He'd been on the front line of mm -hmm. seeing how this class structure wasn't really working for everyone in the way that he had been raised, in the way that he had worked uh, through the colonial government. So that makes sense. But this, what about Lenin? Well, I was going to say, this is what makes the 20th century so fascinating. The 20th century is just this vortex of new ideas of self-rule coming from all different corners of the world and corners of thought, literally. Uh, and ultimately, I want to say this, Marx is really, uh, he would not have viewed the Soviet Union as an expression of his idea of communism, he would have felt like the the Soviet Union is just capitalism run by the state and no better than in any other country. And perhaps it's the goodness of human nature that seeks to find a better world for everyone. I don't know. We'll give it a, a virtuous twist. Well, sure. And that's what all these forces were about in the 20th century is establishing how do we make things fair and more equal for people. We had our version of it in the United States. Every country around the world was struggling with some version of that. So how does Lenin figure into this? Lenin was a Russian, of course, who was familiar with the Communist Manifesto and decided that this was the way to go, and he adopted the ideas and into the Russian Revolution. Um, however, and those who read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar knew this, you can start a revolution, but you can never control one. <laughs> it, I won't even go into the French Revolution. Classic <laughs> case in point. Anyway, towards the end of Karl Marx's life, even he said he was not a Marxist, meaning he didn't want to be associated with everything that his ideas had morphed into. He, so he'd lost control of his own concept of revolution by then. So what happened in Russia is this. It was February 1918. Peasants were out in the cold begging for bread and protesting. Soldiers were called out to stop the protests. Shots were fired. People were killed. Things progressed. It wasn't too long. Nicholas II abdicates the throne, but this didn't really fix anything. And by November, Lenin had staged a bloodless coup and taken over the government. Um, today, it's called the October Revolution. Uh, he made himself the head of the government, that, but there would be a council of peasants and soldiers and workers, and those councils are called Soviets, which is where we're going to get the concept of the United Soviet Socialist Republic. This was the world's first communist state, and Lenin was its leader. 
The problem was being the dictator of a communist party is a pretty competitive job, it turns out, and others wanted it. There are rivals. <laughs> so the country broke out in the Civil War again, confirming the idea that you can start revolution, but you can't control one. Um, there was the, the White Army, the Mensheviks. There was the Red Army, the Bolsheviks. Lenin Ar- Lenin's army was the Red Bolshevists, and they eventually went out. However, the country was just as wrecked, and he couldn't feed it. Ironically, neither could socialism. So he made a concession to his ideas that farmers could sell their wheat on the open market. And by 1922, he had suffered a stroke, and his health was horrible, although his fame was legendary. Uh, Some say, but who knows, that he was trying to steer the country away from a totalitarian regime. But the general secretary, a man by the name of Joseph Stalin was amassing power and total control and had a very different view of how things should work. Well, that is a familiar name, and just like Old Major, Lenin would die. Although I will say, what came after turned out horribly. But by the time I got to Russia in 1992, the mythology of Lenin was already formed. He was a hero. He was mythic. His likeness was everywhere. Uh, He was... Active people acted like he was beloved, but who knows? They didn't have freedom of speech. He's in every classroom, his pictures in every post office, his faces on all the arenas, and they have statues everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. You can't go, you couldn't go, I'm sure you can now, but in 1992, you couldn't go anywhere in the Soviet Union and not be staring at Lenin's face or old major and the dream and everything that you see him talking about in the beginning of chapter one of Animal Farm. If you go to Moscow, of course, in the middle of town, there's a red square, and there's his body. It's been preserved. It's in a mausoleum, and you can go see it. Yes, because totalitarian dictatorships practice something called the cult of personality. They purposely create mythical figures as a way of trying to uh, control behavior. Even in the book, Orwell makes a great analogy. When old Major is dead, after he's been dead long enough, they dig up his skull and they keep his skull out. Very much uh, paralleling the whole Lenin's body being on display thing. Well, if you ever go to Russia or in Moscow, you have to go see it. you got to go see the skull, but really the body of Lenin that's just laying there. But anyway, just like in the story, when old Major passes on, there's two other pigs And Orwell wants you to know uh, that they are actually pigs. Uh, That Snowball was a more vivacious pig than Napoleon. He's quicker in speech and more inventive. But he was not considered to have the same depth of character, whatever that means. (laughs) Hmm. Yes, and in real life, this does correspond to Joseph Stalin, who is Napoleon, and a man by the name of Leon Trotsky, who we're going to make into Snowball. And again, there was a power vacuum. Both of these guys assumed they were the heir to Lenin after his death. Stalin was just more terrifying and better at consolidating power and basically ran off Trotsky, who ran all around the world to Central Asia, to Turkey, to Britain, but finally ended up in Mexico. Well, he could have gone to a worse spot. I I like Mexico. (laughs) Except for the problem that he was murdered in Mexico with an ice axe to his skull by a Spanish communist. That that fit, yeah, that's not the same. That kind of ruins your vacation. <laughs> so anyway, that's one way of looking at it. But mostly, he was thinking about the fact that he wasn't a totalitarian ruler like he thought he was going to be. But that's 
getting ahead of ourselves a little, isn't it? But let's get back to these parallels. So we've established that Old Major is Lenin. Then we established that Joseph Stalin is Napoleon and Trotsky is Snowball. So we have these very obvious parallels. Now I want to talk about animalism because uh, the seven commandments of animalism have a direct parallel to another ism, which uh, is communism. And there are important things that we need to know about these, these rules and what they're supposed to mean, although some of them are quite silly. Like, um, I'm sure in real life, Stalin and Trotsky you know, wore clothes and slept in beds and, and things <laughs> Drink like that. Drink alcohol, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Which are uh, against the rules of, quote, unquote, animalism. Well, you know, obviously some of this is Orwell just having fun with the animal characters. And we mentioned this last week that it was important that, that this book wasn't so heavy and making fun rules about clothes, sleeping in beds, walking on two legs. I feel like if I were to guess, that plays a part in making the book keep its kind of light feel or lighter feel because it's hard to talk about Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky and murder and keep it light. Yes, and I think it's important to to notice that Orwell is actually a genuine animal lover. He loved animals and he despised animal cruelty and I think his compassion for animals allows us to have compassion through his his expression of animals for people. And this comes through uh to help us sell, I think, maybe the allegorical nature uh, of the book. I want to read the um, the commandments, and if it's okay, I want you to talk to me about how they're analogous to communism. So rule number one, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Number two, whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. Number three, no animal shall wear clothes. Number four, no animal shall sleep in a bed. Number five, no animal shall drink alcohol. Number six, no animal shall kill any other animal. Number seven, all animals are equal. What we need to understand is this. Uh, animalism is analogous to communism. That means it's, it's supposed to be communism. So in the book, whenever you see them appealing to animalism and its ideas, you're supposed to know Orwell is talking about communism. And the main takeaway is this. The Marxists or the Leninists or the Socialists or the Communists, however you want to call it, and there were a lot of different versions and names for this, but they truly believed they could make a world where everyone could be equal. Look at rule number seven. Um, all animals are equal. That is the vision. And obviously those of us in the United States are taught from our earliest days a similar value. It's, our, it's in our Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. But what does that actually mean? The Marxists, the socialists, the communists, etc. believe that a government that controlled all the resources would be fair and distribute to everyone an equal share. And obviously you can understand why this is going to appeal to Russian citizenry. They'd been living as serfs where they worked and all the fruit of their labor went to the landlords and the nobility did nothing. So the idea that whoever was at the top was going to make everyone share equally seemed awesome, just like it did to the animals on the animal farm. But this is a heavy idea, even if you cloak it with six other fun rules. So can you create a system that totally controls man's 
evolutionary drive to try to push himself upward. Uh, what we've seen through Trotsky and Stalin is that, uh, you know, a lot of desire inside of the pursue control and power was always constant. It was always evident. But no one was really recognizing that in 1924. And that brings us to the other characters who also weren't really recognizing that there was a power play game being played the whole time. We're going to see Boxer. That's I think Boxer maybe is the most important character because Boxer is regular people. And although uh, lots of us like to think, had we been in Russia, we'd be in the palaces dancing as beautiful princesses or princes or whatever, like when we envision these things in movies, uh, that is highly unlikely. Those kinds of people are few and far between, and they're inbred, so just a few families. So the chances that anybody listening to this podcast would have not been a peasant is not good. (laughs) (laughs) Most of us would have been the boxers. Yeah. There is no such thing as upward mobility on Manor Farm. You see that there's an attempt, the expression, I will work harder, but boxer is a peasant. He's undereducated. He's a really good guy. That's the main thing about boxer. And a true believer. Yes. Uh, He's strong. He's honest. He's just a hardworking guy, gal. I'm going to use that term genetic, generically. It's not gender specific. He truly believes in Animal Farm. He sings the hymns of the Republic. He fights for the Republic. But he has two mantras. One is, Napoleon is always right. The other is, I must work harder. And that's the idea that you believe, if I work harder, I will be rewarded for my labor. But what we, we, what we learn through this book uh, that although it's naively, he's naively nice, his problem is that is mantra number one. Napoleon is always right. He believes what he's told by the media, which on Animal Farm is posted on the side of the barn, and the media has an actual character name. And on Animal Farm, just in real life, the news, the, exp- the you know, the way what's going on as it's communicated to the to the regular people is controlled by a group of educated elites and regular farm people regular animals are told what to believe and they're encouraged just to trust the elites and believe the news that they're being told and continuously work harder work harder work harder Uh, a key character in this book is squealer Stalin was a master crafter of the story, and this is really a key point that Orwell was making. And keep in mind, in 1945, propaganda was not nearly well as developed. I mean, of course, the Hitler regime takes propaganda to a new level, but then the Soviet regime will do it as well. And so it's a new force uh, during this time period. In Chapter 2, we're for Snowball. By Chapter 5, we've been told to hate him. Uh, the animals are given a narrative, and the animals believe the narrative. And just like in real life, when a narrative needs to change, excuses are given, and everyone just follows along. You'll see that on Animal Farm, uh, the pigs are the educated elite. Think of them as your Ivy League kids, if we were going to make the analogy to compare to the United States, which we're not doing, but just so you get the point. Uh, the pigs can read and write. They're a unified group from the very beginning that set themselves apart as being better than everyone else. And although no one really catches on to this because 
they claim to be like everyone else at the same time. Uh, they have more education, and they use their education and their control over the media, uh, which is the barn wall and animal farm, and they use it as a weapon to keep power over and over and over again. And I want to point out, we see the elite keeping more than their fair share from the very beginning. Orwell is going to illustrate this first using milk, and then he's going to use apples. The pigs milk the cows, and they keep the milk. When the animals ask about it, the pigs say, never mind the milk. The harvest is more important. So you work harder, work harder. Just trust us, and we'll take care of everything. And that's what everyone did. The harvest was really hard, and everyone worked as hard as possible. Everyone, that is, except the pigs. Orwell says this, The pigs did not actually work, but directed and supervised the others. With their superior knowledge, it was natural that they should assume the leadership. So we see the natural hierarchy emerging, but it's very disguised. They get to not work because they have natural leadership abilities. And so the rules begin to not apply to the pigs. And this is just going to get on, go on and on and become more and more obvious throughout the whole book. And we see Orwell using that beautifully wonderful dramatic technique called dramatic irony. Now, if we remember, irony means the opposite. So dramatic irony means that the reader, the person who's reading the story, knows that what's actually going on is the opposite of what the characters in the book think is going on. And so you're supposed to kind of get upset at this. You're supposed to say, no, that's not fair, Boxer. Can't you see? Can't you see? And you're supposed to be mad. Even from the beginning, you know, you tend to love Boxer. He's created a world where you do love Boxer and you do admire Boxer. He's sweet and kind and honest and loyal and hardworking. And he's doing way more than his fair share. And you're going to see the pigs. They just take advantage of him. And that's going to make you mad. And that's exactly what Orwell wants to happen. And that's his genius and why the book was controversial in the first place. When the book came out, we were touting Stalin as a World War II ally and a friend. Although, as we close at the end of World War II, the United States military was well aware of the growing threat of the Soviet Union and their plans to dominate Eastern Europe even after the war. Um, and Orwell is saying, you fool, he's evil and a liar. I want to bring up a couple of other things about the comparisons to the Russian Revolution specifically. The first one is the character of Moses the Raven. And this is a little humorous, really. Yes, once again, the church is going to be the brunt of a funny, although not very veiled, jab of criticism. Moses was, and I quote, Mr. Jones's pet. So Moses, that's a Bible name, it's religion. He was the pet of the czars. He was a spy. He's a spy in the story, and he's a talebearer, but he's a clever talker, so people believe him. In the story, he claims to know the existence of a mysterious country called Sugar Candy Mountain, to which all animals go when they die. And he says this, It was situated somewhere up in the sky, a little distance beyond the clouds. Moses said, In Sugar Candy Mountain, it was Sunday, seven days a week. Clover was in season all the year round, and lump sugar and linseed cake grew on the hedges. In the story, the animals hated Moses because he told tales and he did no work. 
However, they did believe in Sugar Candy Mountain. What do you make of all that? Oh, it's a great reference to the whole idea of the czars and the established Church of Russia working hand-in-hand to maintain power. And, of course, um, you know, it appears that Orwell was not a religious man, and communism definitely promotes atheism in real life, um, as are the pigs on Animal Farm. So no thinking people believed in Sugar Candy Mountain, and he makes heaven appear as silly as possible. True. But Moses does find a place on Animal Farm, and we're going to see his development. So what the communists do with the church is what you're supposed to see mm-hmm. what the pigs are doing with Moses uh, on the animal farm. A couple of other characters that we haven't talked about are Molly and Benjamin. Molly is silly. She's materialistic, and she loves ribbons, and she runs away and does no work, and eventually she's going to run off completely. So the idea is the the old system kind of worked for her. She was maybe upper middle class. She wasn't a peasant. She was being pampered. And so this revolution was offering nothing for her. Which I find her interesting because there's just one little passing idea about her in the book that Orwell puts in there. When she goes inside the house, she looks into the mirror uh, at herself. But he takes a moment to reference the picture of Queen Victoria hanging on the wall. What does that mean? Well, it's an obvious allusion to to English monarchy or British monarchy. So she's kind of like, oh, I love the monarch so much. She's a monarchist in the yes. sense. Yeah. yeah fond Even though she doesn't have a title, perhaps herself, she admires that way of life, maybe has benefited from that way of oh, life. And, and nothing represents monarchy more than the, the age of Queen Victoria. And she's very pretty, I'll just say, uh, in the book. We have Molly's... Uh, kind of a weak pretty uh little character then we have old benjamin well then benjamin is the world of academia so lots of smart people could possibly see what was going on but were either powerless or disinterested in politics enough to let it go until it was too late which occurs in revolutions sadly this is probably where a lot of people fall today but we'll get to that in a whole other episode So Benjamin is never fooled for a minute by Squealer. He does not buy propaganda. He doesn't fall for the psychological games of gaslighting and rewriting history that Squealer does all the time. But he never really gets involved. His curse is his apathy or his helplessness, however you want to define it. He's going to just sit back and watch the whole thing do what it's going to do. Well, getting back to the story... Life on the farm at first is very promising. They have their first harvest. It goes well. They get. They don't have to give anything to anybody else like Mr. Jones or whatever. And everyone gets a free education. They're all learning to read. And I will give this to the Soviets. That's one thing you can say. They did educate their people. And that's to their credit. And on the farm, everyone gets as educated as they can possibly get, although... As they can manage. (laughs) Yeah, poor little boxer can't... (laughs) He only goes to A, B, C, D, then he forgets. But anyway, some of them do read and write really well on the farm. But the deception by the pigs is what we're supposed to be watching. And we're going to see how they begin... What they do to be able to deceive all the other animals. They do some of it very deliberately 
with these traditions. They're going to have every Sunday hoisting of the flag. And they do this deliberately. One thing for uh, some very deliberate, you know, formalized strategies like ceremonies of hoisting the flag and singing certain things. And the flag, Snowball's going to explain, is going to represent the green fields of England and the hoof is going to signify the future republic of the animals. And they would do all these things. And then we're going to have other organizations like animal committees that they're going to get involved with. And so there's certain things like that that we're going to see emerge. But we're also going to see at the same time Uh, this deception and stealing of the pigs. They're going to get busted for drinking milk and eating apples, even though they were supposed to share that with everybody else. And they're going to say, oh, well, it's not in a spirit of selfishness or privilege. It's because uh, we're brain workers and everything depends on us. And I want to talk about that uh, passage specifically, but before that, what can you tell us? What are the parallels in real life with these committees and all this other stuff? Well, you know, the early days when you had Soviets, the Soviets were organizations that actually went about setting production quotas and trying to manage resources and things of that nature. So that was their early intents. But as under Stalin, power gets more and more centralized and uh, more controlled by him. They lose their effectiveness to do all that. And but under Stalin's regime, they will have a, a ton of centralized planning. You're going to get a class of people called apparatchiks. You're going to get a group of people who become permanent bureaucrats. And the bureaucrats become the dominating elite society inside the Soviet Union. Well, and people are going to, although they're learning to educate themselves in some ways, a lot of the animals, you know, they don't really have time to think about all these essential principles of animalism. So they reduce it to four things, to one thing, actually. They're going to say this. Just remember, four legs good, two legs bad. And the blame game is really the only thing that you need to remember on Animal Farm. Well, at at the heart of Marxism is class struggle and oppression. And Mr. Jones is always going to represent oppression. And any time they need to draw up the specter and ghost of Mr. Jones, their rationalization is... If you don't support this thing we're doing over here as brain workers, it will allow the old despot to come back. Well, and then no one's supposed to notice this, but Napoleon, who takes no interest in Snowball's committee, takes a very big interest in the education of these puppies. He says this, uh, as soon as, so Jesse and Bluebell are going to have these puppies, and as soon as they're weaned, Napoleon took them away from their mother, saying that he would make himself responsible for their education. He took them up into a loft, which could only be reached by a ladder from the harness, and there kept them in such seclusion that the rest of the farm soon forgot their existence. What's that about? He is developing a Stalin-style secret police force. Uh, as the Stalin regime used to terrorize all kinds of Soviet citizens during his his tenure. Uh, Stalin is absolutely infamous for political purges and murders of political opponents by using the secret state police. I want to point out one more thing, because that just, at this point in the book, you can almost read over it and not notice that the pups are gone, because right after that, we're going to say this. The mystery of where the milk went went to was soon cleared up now i want you to notice that he uses the passive voice when we use the passive voice instead of saying 
Gary stole my watch. I say, the watch was stolen. It doesn't tell you who did something. And so he talks in the passive voice all the time. So you to leave this confusion is you never know who's uncovering. Maybe it was uncovered accidentally. It certainly comes across as an accident. So he says this, the mystery of where the milk went to was soon cleared up. It was mixed every day into the pig's mash. In other words, it didn't say the pigs took the milk and put it in their food. It was mixed. I don't know. It just it was mixed. The early apples were now ripening. The grass of the orchard was littered with windfalls. The animals had assumed, as a manner of course, that these would be shared out equally. One day, however, the order went forth that all the windfalls were to be collected and brought to the harness room for the use of the pigs. And you, as a reader, are supposed to be going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. At this point, the other animals murmured, but it was of no use. All the pigs were in full agreement on this point. Even Snowball and Napoleon, who agreed about nothing, could agree that they should get all the apples. Squealer was sent to make the necessary explanations to the others. Now, who is Squealer in real life? Did they have an uh, an organization that was Squealer? Uh, Well, the Soviet Union had an official propaganda ministry. And it was their job to to dole out information or disinformation, considering how you want to do it. One of the, the major arms of them uh, disseminating information was Pravda, which, interestingly enough, is the Russian word for... Truth. Truth. More <laughs> irony right there. And, of course, uh, it was a joke during the... During that time period that Russian citizens say, well, whatever is improv, the opposite of that is the truth of what's going on in the world. And that's exactly true here. Squealer says whatever he's supposed to say. And he's going to say, comrades, you do not imagine. I hope that we pigs are doing this in a spirit of selfishness. I already said that before, but I want to read it again. And privilege. Many of us actually dislike milk and apples. I dislike them myself. Our sole object in taking these things is to preserve our health. Milk and apples, this has been proved by science, comrades, contain substances absolutely necessary to the well-being of a pig. We pigs are brain workers. The whole management organization of this farm depend on it. Day and night, we are watching over your welfare. It's for your sake that we drink that milk and eat those apples. Do you know what would happen if we pigs failed in our duty Jones would come back. Yes, Jones would come back. Surely, comrades, cried cried Squealer, almost pleadingly, skipping from side to side and whisking his tail. Surely there is no one among you who wants to see Jones come back. And, of course, that's the one thing they knew for sure. They did not want that. And to kind of sum things up, they're using terror to create a hierarchy of which they are at the top. And they'll use a state police force later on in the book to enforce that. They'll use manipulation of the media, the barn wall, to accomplish that. And Orwell's whole complaint is, if this were truly a communistic state, it would have been devolving more into more participation and broadly shared power. It's the exact opposite of that. It's becoming more hierarchical, more tyrannical, more despotic. 
So to put it in simpler terms, watch what people do and ignore what they say. Exactly. <laughs> people lie with their words. They tell the truth with their actions. And so do pigs. <laughs> Apparently so. All right. Well, that's a, a great introduction to chapters one through three. Again, we are fully aware we're giving you lots of history, but it's important as we develop the story in the later chapters. And it's what gives Orwell's work the rich depth of meaning that it has decades later. Well, we'll sum it up for now. Okay. Well, thanks for being with us again today. We, uh, we love having you along as we discuss fun topics like this. Check us out on our Instagram page, How to Love Lit Podcast, uh, on our Facebook page. Also, go to howtolovelitpodcast.com. Check out the teaching supplies, the, our communications, our really Emmy award-winning videos that we post from time to time. <laughs> also, more importantly than all that, if you like our podcast, please tell your friends and have them come along and enjoy the books with all of us. Peace out. Secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.